Yeah, they said, we love it. We're ready to become a customer. We're not your first customer, right? Of course not. No, come on, God, are you kidding me? We've got millions of customers, just kidding. And they said, well, how much does it cost? And my co-founder and I, we hadn't talked about how much it was gonna cost. So with a straight face, deadpan face, we said, it's $1,000 a month, it's $12,000 a year. And he said, cool, well, uh, let's get you into the buying process. Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Today I have Vishal Sunak on the show. Welcome to the show, Vishal. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. So my first question is, could you tell us a little bit about your company and what problem do you guys solve? Yeah, we're building software for legal teams. So in-house legal teams, we're building amazing software that really helps them modernize uh, how they uh, enable the business to perform and, and accelerate and specifically around contracts today. So we have the leading uh, contract management software uh, in the industry, and it's powered by some really incredible technology, including some artificial intelligence uh, that we built ourselves. And so uh, LinkSquares is a kind of end-to-end contract management experience that enables uh, actions pre-signature to be very efficient, like drafting the same document over and over again, managing versions and red lines, approvals, as it gets to the point of signing and then the actual signature piece, which we do too. And then uh, where you end up storing executed contracts, which is how we got started with an amazing purpose-built repository with AI that essentially reads the contracts and it creates like extracted summaries of what someone has agreed to, which is actually a really big business problem. Companies really struggle to know what's inside contracts they've signed because they're different. They get redlined, you use third-party paper. And so, that's the mission. Uh, we we're coming up on seven years since we incorporated uh, in November. So really been an exciting journey. That's exciting. I, I want to dive deeper into the AI part of the software a little bit later because that's super exciting because like so many times uh, how you guys apply that. But I will do that a little bit later. For now, could you tell a little bit about how did you come up with the idea to, to build something for, for lawyers? And yeah, how, how did that get with the idea? Yeah, as this is SaaS origins, right? The origin is also very <laughs> fascinating, right? Yeah. I think some of the best companies have been born out of firsthand experiences. LinkSquares is no different. So uh, I was working at a tech company in Boston with my co-founder, Chris, that a bigger company came in, a bigger private company came in and decided they wanted to acquire us, right? And we were in the backup space and they were in the backup space. So it made a great fit. And so during the point where the bigger companies kind of integration acquisition corporate development team shows up at the little company which is us and starts poking around asking questions one of the big questions they had was trying to understand from a customer agreement perspective like what flexibility did they have to kind of change how we were delivering this backup product specifically could we move their data that we were backing up into another cloud we were using aws but the company that bought us 
they had their own cloud. They didn't use AWS. They were big enough that they had like, I don't know, 50, 100 petabytes in the Midwest or something. And they said, well, I don't want to pay your AWS bill because it's massive backing up petabytes of data every day. And I want to move all your customers off AWS. So tell us which customer's contract says we can move their data off AWS without their permission. And uh, the reality was uh, we're a high growth company growing really, really fast. Uh, highly disorganized on where these customer agreements were. They were everywhere. They were printed out in filing cabinets. They were attached haphazardly to Salesforce opportunities. That wasn't even our process. I don't know. They were in Google Drive accounts uh, and they were in people's emails. Like, So it shined a light first on the organizational chaos that companies have around contracts, right? Um, the second thing it shined a light on was a lot of them had been negotiated. So they were all like, you know, different and varying. And we worked with really large brands too, like Logitech and Whirlpool, Financial Times, Waitrose. Like we we then use third-party paper, right? That's a kind of a, you know, unfair thing that happens that massive companies will never sign your terms of service. So we had a bunch of those, um, the big kind of revenue accounts. And it was really like an impossible exercise. That was a light bulb moment. And it wasn't like light bulb moment, quit my job. We're going to go full time on this. It was a light bulb moment to be like, huh, this is really interesting. Like maybe, maybe it's something worth exploring, right? And kind of the journey started from there. That is our origin story. So did you solve that problem for that company before you went and built up this product that could solve problems for everyone else? Or how did that happen? Oh, I wish that could have been the story, but um, <laughs> at, at the company we were working at, we decided to email all the customers and say, hey, we're going to move your data off AWS, which was really the only answer that we had. We couldn't do it. You know, there's thousands and thousands of customers. We, we couldn't do it line by line, and the timeline was too tight. But it was good enough, uh, Phil, to have like an origin light bulb. Hmm, this is really interesting. And then... Some of our kind of network and friends and other companies and mentors, they kind of nudged us towards like, hey, at bigger companies, they have someone who's responsible for contracts. It's called the general counsel. They were the head of the legal team. And we didn't have a general counsel. We were like a hundred and hundred-ish person company, 120 person company. We didn't have a general counsel. I knew exactly, my co-founder and I knew exactly zero general counsels. So we did the only sensible thing, which was, buy 25,000 uh, emails and names that we hired someone <laughs> to mine them off LinkedIn. I think they were in like Pakistan or something. And and we did the only sensible thing, which was send a bunch of cold emails to general counsel saying, hey, I worked at a tech company looks just like yours. We had this issue. Do you have it too? And the hand raises just started. People just started popping, raising their hand and saying, yeah, I have this problem. I just experienced it. Something has gone on. And we just started learning. Like one, one conversation led to another, led to another. It kept going, right? So you started the learning process before you had a product. You just let's code email all these people and ask if they have the problem. Or did you have a product and then you code email the people about the product you were building? How, how did the process went? We put our fist down at the table and we said, we will not build software until we talk to 100 general counsels and make sure that we do the customer discovery, which is so super important to understand that we are solving the right problem. We know what that problem is. It's been validated by many 
different people see the problem in the same way or uniquely kind of different, but that's the same problem. And I'm a builder, right? I'm a two degree engineer, studied computer engineering undergrad. I love software. I love technology. I'm a terrible maintainer. My wife reminds me all the time when, when I, I forget to empty the dishwasher. Uh, I love <laughs> building things. And I think that was the hardest years for me because I'm such a natural builder. I want to just build stuff all the time. And um, taking the time with, you know, it's nice to found a company also uh, with someone who balances me out, right? Like uh, my co-founder, you know, much more methodical, much <laughs> much more like patient as a person and really was, was the one kind of leading the charge to say, let's learn right now. Before we go spend money we don't have and building a product no one wants, let's make sure we get it right. So that, that was like such an important part of the journey was getting it right up front. I agree because like I do see that all the time because like you say, building is fun, especially if you're a builder and it's easy to think that you are busy. And I see people sometimes they start building too quick and then they are afraid of showing the product to anybody because they don't know that they are building the, the correct thing. And I think that's such a great insight. So how, how long did you guys stay in the discovery phase? Like how long did it take you to speak with those 100, 100 people? Yeah, I'd say in about 25 conversations in with general counsels, there was the making of the analyzed product that we have today. Purpose-built repository, meant for legal teams, that they can get information or what they agreed that was our problem. And we still didn't build anything. The first thing we built was a fake Rails app. It was a, it was a Rails app. It did load in browser. I think we ran it on Heroku back then that it had like fake data loaded into a Postgres database and it would load very few routes worked, very few buttons actually you could click on, but it was like a clickable prototype that looked high fidelity enough to actually kind of give a quote unquote lightweight demo and get feedback on like, how do you deal with file name organization? What's the process that you do after a deal gets signed? Where do you store these things? What metadata do you care about? Like, what data would you love to know about every contract you've ever signed? Oh, I want to know the effective data, who the parties are, termination rights, limitation of liability, whatever it is. And so it was like a little clickable prototype that was actually pretty uh, you know, kind of cheap to build. Uh, someone we knew just kind of hacked it together. I think we paid them like three grand or something. Like it was an easy bite to kind of get started. Start not only just prospecting people for like a call, but then prospecting people for a call and then showing off this little prototype and, and kind of continuing to refine it, just continued refinement, 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 right? Then we got to the point where it was like 50 conversations in, I'm feeling pretty bullish about, it's time to build some software now, right? And, you know, the underpinnings of like, you know, building a Rails app from scratch. All right, let's go now. You know, it's now it's time to actually build something. So, okay. So that's amazing because you went with like 25 conversation that, okay, you didn't have software at all. The next 25 conversations, then you are showing them like this prototype, this high fidelity prototype that you build in Ruby on Rails. And now you actually start to build the first version of the product. So walk me through like now it's time to build the first version. How did you do, like how many developers do you put on and, and how long did it take it to, to go all the way to the first customer? Yeah, yeah. so from a time at the tech company we all met at in Boston, um, Backupify, uh, they had invested in using like an offshore team and I actually had worked with an offshore team 
pretty regularly in my work and operations inside the company. And I felt really comfortable just kind of working in a remote workforce. Like I'm a two degree engineer, but like I didn't spend my life coding. I spent my life more like product managing. So like requirements and, and UIs and writing functional specifications, all like really familiar to me. So we, um, we did a little search for uh, Ruby's on, Ruby on Rails developers. I knew that I wanted to pick Rails because I think it's the most widely distributed web application framework in the world. I didn't want to pick any weird, you know, mean lamp stack, like kind of flash in the pan technology that like, you know, 16 people on earth are experts in and the likelihood I could hire one of those 16 experts is probably pretty low. Like, you know, how do we make it easy to like hire people who know how to code in Rails with React front ends and you know, Postgres backends, like standard stuff, right? Not get obsessed with technology or anything like that. I also have lots of friends who are, are you know, exceptional software architects and developers that, you know, hey, man, I just need your advice on something. Like, what do you think? Like this, that, the other thing. And do we need AWS right now? It's like, no, nah, no, nah, DigitalOcean, you can just host on there. It's like 20 bucks a month. Like, it's easy. You don't need AWS now. AWS will be overkill. And so that's how we got started. We found um, we found a really great shop, um, Ukraine, and they just kind of got to work. We had a, a, a freelance a UI designer that my co-founder knew, came up with some mock-ups. I was writing functional specifications in Google Slides, and and uh, we used Pivotal Tracker to get started, and just watching my tickets just get start getting billed and QA it and then deploy it to production and just kind of get the get the underpinnings done right and um, that's how we got started and it was really great because a dollar in like offshore stretches way further than a dollar in America right and we had like I think they had two full stack developers one QA person one dedicated project manager to interface liaison with me. Um, they ended up then adding like a third developer as we continue to like, okay, hey, keep going. This is working. Can we go a little faster now? Uh, yeah, so that's how we got started, kind of humbly, kind of humble means there. That's awesome. So, so I like to dive deeper here because I think here for everyone that's listening to this show and me as someone that have built more than 100 SaaS product, I really like what you did about let's not overthink technology. Be, like you say, your background was in product. And so how can you get the product out of the door? And what is the technology that's going to allow me to focus on the product and not in the technology? I think a mistake that so many founders make is that they want to build their product. What is the hottest new thing? Oh, the hottest new thing is me. The hottest new thing is Go. There's always the hottest new thing. But what you have to think about is what is the technology that's going to get out of the way? So I can build a, 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 a sorry, my French, my, a fucking product. <laughs> you know, like, I want to build a product. <laughs> so, so, and sometimes people let technology get in the way. And Ruby Rails, it's amazing. Like Shopify, a huge SaaS company, is building Ruby Rails. Basecamp is building Ruby Rails. It's just like it's a full stack framework that allow people to to take a product to market and don't let technology get in the way. I think you get to decide when you start a company if you're going to be product-led, technology-led, or sales-led. It looks like you guys decide to be product-led and just decide on a technology that would allow you to, to be that, that product-led company, right? There was no like trophy for the trophy case that we picked the most complicated JavaScript framework that does single page apps and no one knows it because it's so new. It's like, we didn't want to do that at all because 
the thing that I started thinking about is like when this thing actually starts working and then we need to hire people to like W2 employees that work at Link Squares, the company, like what is the highest likelihood of chance that we're going to be able to hire two, three engineers? It's like hire it in the stack that is the most common that you'll get the widest net, right? You know, developers are, are amazing, right? They can come in and say, you know, I've never coded in Django and Python, but I coded in Rails. So with some elbow grease and some time, I'm going to learn how to do this. But even why do that? Like, just hedge your bets that you'll, you'll find more Rails developers than any other web developers you will on the planet, right? And just start kind of simply, like, you know, we weren't doing crazy, fancy, single-page experiences with, with React and, and, like, we weren't even doing that. It was like vanilla rails, like vanilla rails 101 and like scaffold, right? Like running the scaffold, like to actually build the folders for you. Here's the reality too. Like less than 1% of the SaaS products ever make over $10 million. And I think the reality it is, is because people are focusing the wrong thing. And you guys, it's one of those SaaS that actually made over $10 million. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, way, way more than 10 million of <laughs> annual recurring revenue, which has actually been a testament to a lot of amazing work being done here at the company and a lot of people working really hard, making it possible. But yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're tracking, you know, almost a 50 million ARR by the end of this year, right? And it's like building, uh, that's a whole other part of the business, right? <laughs> which is like scaling go-to-market strategy and how do you do it and how do you make your plan every quarter and all that stuff. But the reason I bring that up is because you talk, so we were talking about being simple and, and building the Rails application from the beginning, vanilla JavaScript, because people think they have to up, over-optimize. I would like to kind of like, ask you like what have you had to change in your product of course i believe that was the right approach because you built something simple that took you to market but now that you have a company that is making 50 million dollars in revenue how much of that foundation in ruben rails were you still able to use are you still a very simplistic approach or do you have like an spa at this point like could, could you tell me like how did the technology develop as you took your SaaS from zero to to 50 million and you're going to talk more about how you've done that in a little bit but like just talking about the technology still how did that change the original github repo that did the scaffold the very very first time is still the code repo that gets checked into so it's still alive and well nice. uh, i think what we've learned is as the application got more complicated and we also added other kind of bigger capabilities to it we started to learn kind of state-of-the-art current in other ways. One of, um, one of our friends, uh, Aaron, who's a, a very uh, incredible chief technology officer, he told my CTO, Eric, about how he's building an entire web application completely serverless. And when we heard it, we were like, serverless? Bro, what are you talking about? And, and even Eric, my CTO, who's like a genius, like AWS expert, Rails expert, JavaScript expert, he's like, man, tell me more. What are you talking about? And it's like, well, everything is like a Lambda function, right? Instead of a background worker that goes into a sidekick queue, right? It's like, huh, that's really interesting. And as we were going on the journey, it was like, okay, cool. So Aaron is doing this. Let's see how Aaron does with it, right? And then, you know, we check in with Aaron and we say, Aaron, what's going on, man? Like how... How's the serverless world running? 
And he's like, actually, you know, it's like it works really great here. And we had some issues on, on kind of these use cases. So it's like, oh, that's interesting. Then when we got we became an AI company, really, and, and had to build an AI pipeline, it was like we had this knowledge of like serverless applications and like how Aaron had used it. We actually then ended up using some of that serverless technology. So it's like, I think I'm in a roundabout way, I'm telling you a story that like, don't chase shiny things. You definitely don't want to be the first person to like test something out because then you're just going to get stuck in like a place you can't get out of. Right. It's like, we're like half in on this thing, but we're not subject matter experts in it. And like, I need to keep learning how to use it better. And maybe it's like a brand new technology. Like, I don't know when, I don't know when AWS came out with Lambda functions, but I don't think they started with that on day one that they launched the service. Right. It's like kind of, they're like way out ahead, like, but we know someone who is actually using it. So we learned from them. And then it was kind of like, huh, okay, cool. Maybe in this one application of our AI processing pipeline, we could use maybe serverless technology in this. And we ended up doing it. Uh, and then I think like, as you kind of grow up uh, inside the business, shipping the code is like 5% of it, then like 95% of it is like product marketing and pricing and packaging and and who's going to get this new thing that you build? Existing customers, are they going to get it for free? Do they have to buy into it, right? It ends up being like a release is like 5 10% the software, 90% everything else, right? Which makes it a lot more complicated. You have to kind of think through some of these things in kind of more detail. But um, yeah, we, we end up like, you know, then exploring like other technologies like Elasticsearch. Like, like, how can Elasticsearch make the experience for our users even better? Again, we've always run the product philosophy on kind of two things, right? It's got to be usable, right? When people use it, it's got to be snappy, right? You got to, like, believe that you're interacting with an amazingly sophisticated, intelligent piece of software. And how do the average user, like, like when your internet is slow, it's like, man, this internet is slow, right? Like, you know, when the web app has to like load and, you know, it's like a spinner icon, it's like, no one likes that, right? Like, where are opportunities we can make like really snappy, awesome experiences, right? How can technology do that? And the other thing we always try to solve is make the damn thing look expensive. Like the product's job is to make it usable, make it snappy, delight the users, obviously solve their pain points. Product's other job is to make it look expensive so your sales team can go sell it at like a decent price, right? If it if it looks like a 1990s Toyota Corolla with rust on the bumper, it's going to get priced like a 1990 Toyota Corolla with, with rust on the bumper. If it looks like a Rolls-Royce Phantom, well, that's the answer, right? <laughs> And how do you make it look expensive? Is that UI, UX, or, or how do you make a product look expensive? Yeah, brand look and feel. I mean, it feels and looks modern. Then you start thinking about using things that create that kind of modern experience. Like, you know, where can you use Elasticsearch for in-memory searching, which is very, very snappy, right? Um, where can you use single-page applications so the page never has to reload? The data is just kind of coming in in real time right? How you do like polling and querying in real time, kind of behind the scenes, kind of less background workers and spinners. And like, where are opportunities where you can just give the, give the data back to the user like faster, right? All about snappiness. Like we love snappy things that are snappy, right? And then you have a look in the field, the brand, like, you know, a, a decent, a decent and accomplished UX designer can actually go a long way, make your product like look great. And we, we did a kind of brand refresh, like, 
when we started the company, we had a brand, we had a certain logo, um, and we will retire that logo. We, we created a new logo. We created a new font script. We did that in like 2020. Then we just did it again. Like how, you know, we just did it again. We've changed kind of not the logo, but the fonts we use, the colors we use, how we use them, get more specific on guidance and consistency. Like, you know, we use orange as like one of our primary colors and it's like, okay, well you can't use orange on every single button. Like, you know, so use orange when it's like an important thing, like a, like a creation action or like a deletion action. Like, you know, use other colors that kind of supplement it. And, you know, again, in the hands of like a great artist, like a UX artist, you can actually create a product with, you know, kind of the same effort as you create an ugly looking product. You can probably create a beautiful looking product, right? And thinking about usability, thinking about lazy loading versus, you know, things like big tables, like how you can deal with big tables, like the user experience, like kind of thinking through those things. Yeah. So to summarize what we discussed about like building the product, you, we talk about like start simple. Uh, it's amazing how you, even that first repository that you build still there, it's still the same code base. You start simple, you move to market quick. Uh, but as as you grew, you start to over the same base, but you're like, okay, what other technologies can I add on top of this? You, you add Lambda functions, you add uh, Elasticsearch, and you probably have other APIs and other tools that you add to, to, to improve that product. And then you kept like be, making a beautiful UI, like make it look expensive. I think those are great takeaways on how to build it. Let's switch gears because I feel like build is 30% of the battle and we cover building a lot. Let's talk about marketing. Cause ah, now, you have a pro, now you have a product, we build that product. How did you get your first 10 customers? How did you get your first hundred customers? Like let's start there. But then I would like to go on your journey up to a million dollars and up to $10 million. Let's talk about marketing now and growth. Yeah, so so Jason Lemkin is a big SaaS pundit, right? The founder of Saster and had had uh, created EchoSign, sold it to Adobe. That's where Adobe Sign came from, right? And having read some of Jason's blog posts early days, been a Saster fanboy, Jason always said that uh, kind of initial traction is ten customers who didn't know you, didn't do you any favors. It's not your dad's golf buddies, son, like. Nothing like that. They're completely anonymous strangers buy your product, 10 of them. So in order for us to do that, we did the cold email approach. So wrote a four email sequence, uh, very tight copy, not very long, very, very punchy, kind of strong call to action. We bought one single license to Tout App, the only company in the, in the sales automation world who would sell us one license was ToutApp. <laughs> uh, outreach turned me away. Sales Loft turned me away. But but ToutApp would sell us one license. That's all we had the money for. Um, I think in my Gmail today, I have something like 800,000 emails in my Gmail, my personal work Gmail, because we ran all the mail merges <laughs> through my Gmail uh, using the mail merge technology for high deliverability. And yeah, we just started doing that, right? And then... Customer one, customer one was someone in the Boston area that I had a, I had a direct connection to. I knew the company in Boston and they kind of fit the core philosophy. The reason how I figured that out was in their lobby, they had about 200 customer icons of the world's biggest brands, P and G like three M like, like huge, massive multinational conglomerate. I'm like, 
you got to have this contract problem. Every single one of these customers probably negotiated a third-party paper deal with you. They will never sign your contract. And I, I had an intro to the former CEO. Uh, I knew her. I just prospected her. I sent her an email. Hey, how's it going? Hey, you know, I got this thing going. Can I talk to someone in the company? She's like, sure, you can talk to the CFO. I think he's actually looking for something like this. Well, hey, awesome. We walked in there. We had the product is working. You know, we were very early on the AI journey then. It was more like a searchable repository, like a text-based search repository, um, Google search repository. And um, yeah, they said, we love it. We're ready to become a customer. We're not going to be, we're not your first customer, right? Of course not. No, come on, God. Are you kidding me? We've got millions of customers. Just kidding. And they said, uh, well, how much does it cost? And my co-founder and I, we hadn't talked about how much it was going to cost. So, so with a straight face, deadpan face, we said, it's $1,000 a month. It's $12,000 a year. And he said, cool, well, uh, let's get you into the buying process and, and the procurement process. You got some paperwork to fill out and security, you know, other things we didn't even realize we had to do, right? Like, and then it's like, hey, you know, kind of worked on it for a couple weeks, three, four weeks, worked really hard on it. And then we had our first customer in April 2016. Let me stop you here. So, so you and your um, co-founder personally closed that first customer. You guys were first involved in that meeting, and it's an amazing day story. So, like, now, how many of the future customers was it still you guys closing? Like, up to like how many customers? Like the first ten, the first hundred. How many of those customers was you guys personally closing the deal? So, first year selling, we did five customers. We were halfway to that Jason Lemkin inflection point, which is 10, right? The next deal we the next year we had gotten up to, we added 20 more. We were up to 25. And I mean, involved in every single deal. Mainly because there's no one else. I mean, the company was so small. We had our first employee like January 2017. He's still with us now. Now he's my VP of sales, right? Under my CRO. And uh, we taught him what we knew. I don't know. Hey. This is what we say. This is how we do a kind of lightweight demo. This is kind of, you know, how we ask questions. This is what we've learned in kind of, I don't know, five, six opportunities that we've had and, and closed. And then that, that third year, we kind of hit the kind of one to four million journey. We like tripled our revenue and well, quadruple, right? Depending on how you measure it. But um, we did 124 logos. And that's like, we had other reps that we taught how to sell from the original foundation of how the founders got, you know, kind of 20 ish customers with like a ragtag crew, just like trying to figure out how to message it and buy it. We're getting better, right? We're getting better. We're speaking that language of the legal team, speaking that, you know, asking better questions every single time, right? Taking lots of at-bats, generating as many pipeline opportunities as we possibly can. We're going to need a lot of at-bats, right? Conversion rates were not where they were now. And so the year 124 logos, we kind of stepped away from like running the demos, running the calls. Now, then we focus on running the deal desk, like running the deal desk. What is a deal desk? If you don't know uh, security, like getting through questionnaires, right? Like reviewing security policies. We're going to store some of the most sensitive information inside the company. Uh, order form creation. Like how do you make a good looking order form that has all the stuff in there? You do all the scenarios like, well, they want to start, they want to sign today. We need you to sign today, but they actually can't start for two months. So you're actually doing like a 12 month deal 
you know, a 14 month deal for the price of 12. You have to do the MRR, ARR math on that, but just helping get the deals in working in, we have the joy of negotiating against general counsels. So like our terms of service always gets red lines on it, right? It's not like a click through product that people are really friendly with. It's like, this is my, this is their turf negotiating contracts with a, yeah. So we had to deal with that muscle, like hire a great contract attorney, outside contract attorney, work them like a dog, like end of the quarter, like, Hey man, can you do these 15 red lines? Like every single customer, like would red line back in the day. And so, yeah, then we transitioned to kind of running the deal desk and helping and, and, and you're getting on a call. Hey, I'm the founder of the company. Like, you know, this is the vision. You're, you're messing around with the right people. Like you're here, like we're going to crush it together. Like doing kind of more of the, the support work deal desk. I ran with my co-founder, we kind of ran the deal desk through, I'd even say through kind of 2021, you know, 2021, I was still doing it. Then in 2021, I hired my chief legal officer and he was like, dude, I got it now. I got it. I got it. You know, it's like, you don't have to do this anymore. <laughs> like you've done a great job, but I can do this one hand tied behind my back. I'm like, well, thank God you're here. So it's kind of like you transition, you're doing the work, then you're helping the people doing the work, then you're kind of running the deal desk. And then now it's like, it just runs 24 hours a day, basically, whether I'm in the office or not, or, and uh, it's been a real joy to see it grow up fast too. Congrats. I, I know it, it's hard for us to, as a founder, take ourselves out of a job and, and you're working and trying very hard to accomplish that. Yeah, that's a great journey. And I think it's an amazing insight too that the first 24, 25 clients was you guys that, that closed those deals because you, you learn and then you could teach your VP and then you could replicate because no one sells like the founder. That's just the reality. The founder is going to... If any good founder should be the best salesperson of the company, <laughs> you know. So it, it, that's amazing. So now let's let's talk about how you guys scale the marketing side. Like, did you kept doing coding mail out out the way, or did you do anything different? Like, other channels did you incorporate as as you were growing and trying to bring new customers? Sure. Yeah. So cold email was a real effective strategy that kept working. Right. So we, we use that as kind of the foundation of our go-to-market motion, right? Cold email. Remember, we don't have tons of money. We're not going to burn it on pay-per-click pay advertising. They may have like a 1% click-through rate. We don't have the money to spend on pay-per-click advertising. So I had known this because I had worked in like marketing operations before, like how hard it is to build like a, a organic, you know, page one rank organically on keywords. It takes years, right? So that's not going to turn a high ROI. It's going to turn a high ROI now, like seven years into the journey. That's cool. But that's not something you can get immediate results on. Um, Pay-per-click advertising is very expensive with very, very low click-through rates, right? And, and not the right strategy. We didn't have the money to do it. I loved event marketing. So at, at the company I worked at, Backupify, uh, we were big into like going to find our buyer at conferences. And I had kind of learned about event marketing is so much fun. You're in a booth, people are coming by, you're handing out swag, you're having conversations, like a natural fit for like an extrovert like me. Like I'm an extrovert engineer. I don't even know if that's possible, but um, I, lo I love to work in the booth. And I actually started working the booth a little bit too, like being attached to marketing. So we sponsored our first kind of couple of trade shows and they just had amazing, amazing ROI, like spend a dollar, bring home like three, $4 of annual recurring revenue. Like, and 
I was like, this is great. <laughs> like, I remember we sponsored our first trade show. We dressed up with doctor's coats. We had operation in our booth. We had little pill bottles, a prescription for link squares, solving all your headaches of contract management. Like uh, we were like three people, me, my co-founder, my first employee. We just had a hell of a time just like standing in the booth for 12 hours, like working the opportunities, doing demos, like talking to the community. Oh, have you heard of LinkScores? No, I haven't, right? So we loved doing event marketing. That is still a huge ROI channel for us now. Um, and then starting kind of the basics of our content marketing strategy, like, like we use the scalable content model, which is like we write three blog posts about a topic, right? And then you take those three blog posts, you write an introduction and a conclusion, you give it to a designer, they package it into an ebook. And then you write a bunch of ebooks and then you package a bunch of ebooks into a complete guide. And then you take a bunch of complete guides and you package them into like the compendium of contract management, whatever, right? Yeah. And then, you know, we ended up needing content like up and down the funnel, like like top of the funnel content's like warm and fuzzy. You know, anything is a top of the funnel kind of content topic, like like uh, how do you get started with e-signature or whatever, right? Like how do you get started with, you know, how do you structure your legal team? That's like a contract, like a top of the funnel kind of content. And then we ended up needing middle and bottom of the funnel content, like more like product marketing materials. Like I need like a overview of the product and screenshots and a PDF. So someone could like, like take it home and read it, look at it, show someone inside the company through the buying process. Right. Then eventually like product marketing had to keep going and getting bigger. Right. We're making more features. This is why I said that like, you know, software is only like 10% of the journey. It's like everything you build, if you don't have a way to document it, give it to your sales team, give it to your customer success team, put it on your website, make a video, uh, put it in your knowledge base. It like doesn't exist, right? And so then like we needed lots of product marketing material. Like here's the value prop of the analyzed product. Here's the value prop of the final. Here's some case. Then we started doing case studies. Happy customers would do a case study. We make a case study page on the website. Start bragging about how great the software is. Hey, look at this person at this company. They're kicking ass with our software. You can do it too, right? And it just kept on going that way, right? Just chip away at it, right? Then I hired, thank God, I hired my CMO, Juliet. I worked with her at the te same tech company that we all met at. Me, my co-founder, my CTO, my CMO, my CRO, and now lots of other people. But that core five of us, we all knew each other. And like 10 years ago, we were all kind of up and comers. And then like seven years after that, it's like they had kind of continued to rise in their career. And Chris and I became founders. And it was just like wonderful. Like, and then I hired a marketing expert. And I'm like, you got it? She's like, I totally got it. I'm like, awesome. Now let's get to work together. Right? Um, <laughs> that's awesome. So like just to summarize, and, and I think that's kind of like, it's cool because it, it keeps, it's kind of like the same team. You go in as a founder and you do it for a little bit and then you keep doing and then eventually you are able to to bring someone that's able to take that from you but to summarize what you guys done you start with cold email it was cheap it was easy you guys understood from there you went to event marketing then you got into content marketing and as you as marketing start to get more and more complex the guys start to get bigger you brought more outside people now you have a cmo that that's over all the marketing and, and it's it's a, it's cool to see and also i feel like 
code email is such a powerful tool that many times people forget about because it's it's not sexy. Go back to that our conversation about technology. People want to go what's sexy, not what works. So it, it's amazing that you guys really did what 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 worked for you guys, which was code email event, and move from there. I, I want to switch gears again. Well, I'll just add one. I'll just want add one last thing. Like it, it ends up becoming like who your buyer is and how they buy, right? Like the general counsel of a company is not someone that loves to take free trials. Like it's not someone that really trusts anything. Like they're going to negotiate the terms of service before they put any other data in it. So they're protected, right? They're really kind of risk adverse people. They, they're in charge of being risk adverse for the company, right? And so like a PLG strategy, a product-led growth strategy, like it won't work here. It has to be more like a consultative sale. Your buyer is super educated. Juris doctorate, right? Juris doctorate, like they're basically got a very, very advanced degree. They're very, very sophisticated buyers, right? It's not like a, a bunch of people in another department that are just like, whatever, we're just buying software today. Like they're very sophisticated buyers and you need a very sophisticated sales process too. It's kind of the match of like how you go into market. It's all about understanding how your buyer buys, right? What are they willing to do and not? Like general counsels don't like really read blog posts or ebooks now they do they read our stuff right but it's different than the marketing community right there's so much great content on marketing generally like marketers actively go seek it right that's why hubspot built you know the company that they did here in the boston area where we're from and and inspire us but it's all about the buyer right they needed more like a sales-led strategy like hand-holding consultative one-on-one you're not going to be an idiot if you buy this software. You're not going to look like an idiot to your boss. Like we're going to make sure you win, right? Like that's it's all about knowing your buyer again. For sure, there's no silver bullet. You know, like I think that's the reality. That's why I want to to make this podcast because then the listeners can hear different stories. That's the, what works for you guys in your space. You have to understand your buyer. POG wouldn't work for your buyer. There's never a silver bullet. That's not. This is going to always work. Uh, thank you for, for, for bringing that up. So, like, I want to switch gears for a product again. We went over engineering, marketing, but let's talk about the product itself. We didn't talk so because, like, your product solves such a complex problem. I want to talk with you about, like, how did you come up with, like, the ideas? How, when did you bring AI to the picture? Like, what? strategies did you come up to like to build a product in a, such a complex um where you are right now it's a complex product to build yeah contract management is actually like a 25 year old category so it actually has generations of different providers who started at different parts of the journey right we consider ourselves to be generation three like the newest generation right but there's a bunch of generation one companies that are like 20 years old right now so they had focused on pre-signature contract workflow technology, like drafting agreements, managing versions, redline, redlining technology, approvals, right? And that is so saturated in this market. There might be a thousand providers that provide that capability, right? It's kind of a dime a dozen. It's almost like a commodity, right? We started on the post-signature analytics, right? And, and that was how we also went to market because... We had a different value prop, like, hey, what are you doing with contracts that you've already signed? Like, how do you know what's inside them? Do you have projects that you have to go and review them? And the answer is like, I don't know what's inside them. It's a mess. I have to review them all the time. It's a nightmare. 
And like, then it's like, great, I have something that can make your life a lot better. Here's the analyzed product, right? Uh, eventually, we went back and built the pre-signature product, right? That's been in market for almost like three years now. It had a very high technical kind of feature bar. Because again, you're competing with products that are 20 years old. They've maybe rightly or wrongly built a lot of features for it. Like who uses them all? Who knows, right? But the buyer's perspective is like, well, you're missing some of the things that I could buy in the market from other people. Well, yeah, man, this product's only a year old, like back in the day, like it will continue to make it better. Do you want to buy the dream? The analyzed product, the post-signage product, got a kick-ass day one. There's no product in the world like that, right? And so a little bit of that kind of buyer's journey, buyer psychology, you know, factored into it too. Um, we ended up taking the AI journey because companies were like, hey, I like the repository and I like that I can run like my own Google-like searches, like words, pairs of words, stuff like that. I cross all my contracts, kind of get like a, how many contracts have this sentence in it? That's very valuable to me. Okay. And then people were like, well, why do I have to search it? Why can't the, the system just tell me what's inside it? And I was like, ding, that's AI. That is AI. That is natural language processing. That is the ability for an algorithm to read a document like a human and extract data and create data that based on what it's reading, right? What it's seeing. And that AI journey was like, I'm not an AI expert, but I'm, I'm pretty good at reading things on the internet and kind of figuring things out. So we started kind of slow. Like um, one of our, one of our employees, our, our second employee, uh, one of his best friends was like a professor of NLP AI at MIT. It was like, a, I was like, how convenient is this? And so we bought a bunch of beers one night and plied him with beers and pizza. And we just asked him lots of questions, like from an academic perspective, because like AI is like an academic topic, right? It's like studied in academia by PhDs, right? And it's like, hey, man, like, how do you get started when you get more research funding and whatever you're trying to test some new algorithm theory or whatever? And it's like, well, we start by building our own annotation system. So we need to be able to label data. First, we need data. The second thing, we need to label it in a specific way to train an algorithm. I was like, okay, well, then we built our own annotation system. Back then, you know, annotation as a service is like a SaaS offering now, but annotation as a service seven, seven years ago, it didn't exist. So to take the AI journey first, then we needed to build an annotation system to be like, this is the effective day, next contract. This is the effective day, next contract. This is the effective day. That's like a, kind of like a boring, crazy work. I used to spend all my nights just annotating effective dates. That's how we got started. You know, thousands and thousands of them, you know, 50,000 of them, whatever, 100,000 of them. Um, and then and then I raised $4.8 million. We did our seed round. We had lots of traction. Things were going well. We need to keep investing in the AI journey. Then we needed to hire PhDs. We needed to hire our own data scientists, machine learning experts, right? And they're not going to work for free. They're in the most in-demand, sought-after skill set in the planet, right? Uh, being a data scientist, being a PhD. And we knew we needed to invest in this. I raised the money to be able to do it. And we hired a great PhD, Gav, and a great machine learning engineer, Kiran, who was actually our intern from Northeastern University, my alma mater, uh, computer science wizard. Whiz kid um, and kind of ragtag crew kind of created that amazing pipeline that we went to market with that ended up being on that year we grew from one to four million, like a big part of why we did it. Innovation in the product side, we nailed something that's really, 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 really hard and really, really complicated, which is like, how do you read 
how do you read all these documents efficiently? And you can't spend a million dollars a month with AWS either. You got to do it very efficiently. They don't have the cash for it. They created some amazing, amazing technology that ended up fueling our sales team and keep the mission running and raise another round of capital and keep going. That's great. And what a use case for AI, right? Like to be able to go read and categorize those contracts and be able to give the information. I think you guys found the perfect use case for the stage AI was when you guys are starting. It keeps developing. I'm sure like it's getting more powerful every day and you guys can keep using and improving in your product as AI is it's getting more powerful. So when did you know like that you had a product that people loved, like something that could scale, like a product that you you took to 50 million, but like, when did you know, okay, this product, like I have product market fit, people love my product. When did you know that? Yeah, um, kind of classically, it doesn't really matter, and this is kind of published on the internet, it doesn't really matter how long it takes for a company to get to 1 million of ARR, that doesn't matter, it's immaterial, right? Uh, UiPath, really famous company, public company now. I mean, it took 14 years to get to like a million ARR, right? It took a long time for them. Um, the journey from one to 10 is actually benchmarked, right? Like Bessemer Venture Partners, given that they're very, very famous venture capitalists in B2B software, they have all the benchmarks of all their kind of companies they bet on that then have gone public. All this information is then published, right? Private companies then publish it when they go public. Uh, the benchmark one to 10 million, there's been so much pattern matching on, you know, what, what did Twilio look like? How fast did they go one to 10? What did Shopify? What did a uh, box? Like what did all these kind of great pillars, cloud companies, why did they do it? How fast did they do it? And that kind of benchmark is between kind of 24 and 36 months. Like the pattern matching that you can become the next box is like growing from one to 10 million, like in less less than 36 months. And so that means you have to basically triple like one to four and then kind of triple again or two and a half kind of again, right? Like four to 10. And that kind of keeps you on like a two year pace that you're doing it really quickly. So we knew we kind of had it the year we went, the year we got to 1 million at ARR, it was like amazing. Wow. What an accomplishment, right? Uh, but we now know the underpinnings of how to take it faster, right? And triple the revenue, like quadruple the revenue. And we knew we had it when that in 2019, we did 124 new logos, like new customers in one year and started to do like, okay, we have the biggest month ever. We did 30 new customer deals in 30 days, like mind blowing. Like we were like working 24 hours a day practically and everything was breaking. There were like 20 people in the company, like, onboarding was like in queued, like, you know, 10 customers waiting to onboard. We only have like two people doing onboarding. It's like hire someone, hire someone in the onboarding. Like, you know, the app is like, you know, struggling because it's got more data now than ever before. It's like this table is just taking six seconds to load. <laughs> like someone put pagination on this now. Like the lazy load is too slow, like whatever, like just started kind of solving the problems and then running the business on unit economics, like, oh, how's our gross margin? Ooh, the gross margin is starting to get worse. Like, we got to find more efficient ways to get customers implemented. Technology, technology, invest in it, right? Like, um, that's how we really knew. And then also, Phil, like the renewals. When someone invests in you one time, it's one thing. And someone comes back and says, I love this software. Hey, I use it all the time. It's a great piece of software. I'm here for another year. I want to sign up for another year, right? It's like, hey, that's kick-ass. That's great. 
Let's do another year together, right? And let's figure out how we can keep helping you, right? When you start getting into like your first renewal cycles, you're really going to test your worth in the, in the world, right? Um, without, without renewal cycles, you kind of artificially think everything is going great. Then the other thing is we use NPS, right? Every six months, we still do NPS of all of our customers, right? Net, net promoter score. How likely are you to recommend link scores to a friend or a colleague, right? And that's like kind of the default now for the world and how they assess, you know, happiness. And you start seeing people like 10, another 10, nine, another 10. Like, okay, this is great. Hey, you want to, could you do a case study for us? Or if we need you in the sales process, would you do a reference call for us? Like start building that evangelical kind of base of customers that just love your product. And that's when you know you're really hitting it hard, doing the right things. For sure. I, I like it how you measure. I like the, what you talk about, like about velocity at that point. So you, you touch on y unit economics, managing a business by unit economics. What, what does that mean for you? And how do you do that? Could you, could you go deeper on that? Sure. Yeah. Uh, SaaS companies have potentially lots of metrics that could be used to understand the assessment of how the business is performing. There's a small subset that actually have meaning that you should be tracking all the time, which is like, you know, year over year ARR growth, right? You know, you started at one and you ended at four. Congrats. And you did 300% year over year. Awesome. Right. That's like an easy one. Uh, things like um, cost of customer acquisition and more specifically cost of customer acquisition payback, that inflection point where they've crossed over from you spent money to find them. Now they're actually quote unquote profitable. They're past that kind of window Kind of the benchmark is like smaller, younger companies, kind of under 12 months. That means you have a very efficient motion. Kind of 12 months has always kind of been the benchmark. You're in kind of like one year, get the CAC payback. Um, then there's instances where like, you know, your CAC payback can be over 12 because you're kind of investing more heavily in sales and marketing to kind of push the brand out or grab logos or create, create canvassing of the market landscape, right? Like push the product out further. Uh, canvas more customers in this market, right, or subsegment. So, um, CAC payback, gross margin, uh, gross margins like really important. So, uh, it, it takes into account your cost of customer acquisition and then your cost of goods sold, right? So, you can tell a lot about a company that's, you know, running a ninety-five percent gross margin is basically like there's no cost to implement this customer at all, right? Those are more like self-service businesses like Trello. Right. You couldn't find a human being to talk to you about Trello, got anywhere. I mean, <laughs> you sign up self-service, it's a light box tour. It, it, it teaches you how to use the product. Like, you know, hey, this is a card and a list and you're on your own now. Here, have fun, right? Um, data companies, you know, regular SaaS companies can be kind of like 60 to 90% in that window. AI companies tend to kind of be even lower than that because you're using humans to supplement and kind of, Gross margin is so, so important. It really tells you how you're operating kind of holistically. Uh, and then um, we look at things like productivity, like, you know, how much do we pay someone like, you know, base and, and commission if they make their quota? And then how much is that quota? Is that ratio like three to one or four to one? Or like every dollar you pay a sales rep, are they giving you three, four dollars of ARR? Right? We tracking that, right? Um and then we're tracking gross and net retention, which are really important, right? Gross is just 10 customers up for renewal. How many did you get, right? Can't be more than 100%. Net is like how many customers up for renewal and did you expand your existing customers too? 
that you know net retention can be way over 100 percent and many times these great SaaS companies it is way over 120 130 140 percent and so kind of with those in mind you have a holistic look at the company then you get better at like trying to forecast this for next year and then when you make your forecasts can you make your actuals match your forecast then once you start doing that quite well you can actually start controlling the future from like I say this inside to my executive team. I say this to everyone. Like at the end of the day, a SaaS company is the customers, obviously, right? But it is what the spreadsheets from a financial perspective say you are. How much cash you're burning? What's your productivity? What's your gross margin? What's your ARR growth? What's your cost of sale? Like what's your what's your cost of good sale? Like you're kind of rated on what those financial spreadsheets are. The good news is there's so much published benchmarks. Bessemer does a great job. They publish the benchmarks of every stage of company. You know, zero to one, one to 10, 10 to 25, 25 to 50, over a 50, 50 to 100 of like where the gross margin should be, where the CAC payback should be. It's all on the Internet. KeyBank does a great one, too, kind of state of software. Battery does a great one, software report, right? So there's lots of outlets to know how to measure yourself, too. I agree. I agree. And, but like so many times, it's, it's so funny how many things we touch on this as a founder, right? We, t- we just talk about knowing your numbers and knowing those benchmarks. I'm going to put the links for the benchmarks that you mentioned in the show notes. We talk about product, talk about technology, talk about marketing. It's just so much that you need to know uh, to, to run a successful SaaS. And thanks for, for sharing everything. So we're getting to the end of our hour together, but I have a couple closing questions for you. <laughs> The first one I have, it's like, could you share like a oh shit moment in the early days of your SaaS? Yeah, the first kind of oh shit moment was someone asked us to fill out like a 1400 question security questionnaire. And I never answered one security questionnaire in my entire life. And it was like the back end of this security questionnaire is a deal for you. But you got to do this security questionnaire and I called uh, uh, someone I used to work with who did this professionally. I was like, dude, I will like, do literally anything for you to help me answer these 1,400 questions and for you to teach me how to do this next time. And he was like, I'm all over it, man. He's like running a consultant, consulting agency doing exactly this. I was like pretty pleased with the cherry on top. I will literally I'll pay, pay for your dinner. We'll buy beer, whatever you want, man. And um, we sat down and we did it. I mean, it took hours and hours and hours. It took hours. And that was one of the moments where it was like, God, it was exhausting. And you don't even know what you don't know, right? You don't even really know what you don't know until you need to know it. And the people on the other side are like, are you done with the questionnaire yet? I'm like, yeah, 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 we're right on it. You're just (laughs) polishing it up, just, you know, proofreading it for grammar. And I'm just like answering 100 questions as fast as I can. Like, it's pretty wild. Like, that was one of those moments for sure. Yeah, I remember the first time I had to go to that moment too. Like uh, when we we have some bigger customers, like we work with Box, we work with ADP, uh, we work with Apple. And then the first time they're like, are you guys suck too? And I'm like, what the hell is suck too? <laughs> they send me a bunch of questionnaire. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, for sure. That's, but especially in the space that you are, where all your customers are big, I imagine that was very early on. And so if you could go back in time and like meet yourself in 2015, and, and tell yourself something like, what would you tell yourself about like, they would help you for your business? Yeah. Um, quit sooner, go full-time sooner. I mean, I went, I went full-time kind of January, 2016. So I had spent, 
you know, time working at night and on the weekends, kind of doing the product bill while my co-founder went kind of full-time first that like, you know, you should have gone in all in faster, right? And had higher conviction that you're going to build something great here and believe in yourself more, right? Believe that you can figure this out, right? And and you can spend more time learning faster, right? Uh, that's definitely one, right? And, and also uh, tell myself in 2015 that raising capital, it will be very, very hard. It'll be harder. You think it's hard? It's like 50 times harder than what you think is hard, right? And it's going to suck, Michelle. Like, it's just going to suck. It sucks every time. It's hard. It's tiring. Consumes your life. Like, um, but it can be done, right? And uh, and future self would be like, hey, you did five rounds of capital financing. You raised $161.5 million. Great job. You're going to do it, but you're going to go through hell to, to get it. So that's what I would tell myself. Yeah, that's great. So, like, let yourself know there's a, a light in the end of the tunnel and move quicker. <laughs> so, what book do you recommend for, for every SaaS founder? Yeah, for sure, predictable revenue. You're trying to run an inside sales team. Predictable revenue is kind of where it came from. That's the story of how this guy, Aaron Ross, um, built an inside sales, directed inside sales motion um, for Mark Benioff at uh, Salesforce.com. And that is kind of the modern playbook that you see at every single B2B software company is running some sort of playbook around that original kind of philosophy. Uh, the kind of follow-up to that is the sales acceleration formula, which is Mark Roberge's book. Uh, from uh, He was CRO of HubSpot. Uh, he, uh, original founder of HubSpot, one of the founding team. You know, did zero to 100 million. And so, again, kind of same concepts. You're using technology. You're selling over the phone. You're selling on Zoom. You're using data. How do you be more efficient? Right? Those are kind of like foundational. Um, I've been reading the Frank Slootman book, Amp It Up. And Frank is just an absolute animal. Like, uh, you know, took three companies to be public, you know, monster decacorns. Like, uh, and he wrote kind of like a personal biography of like all the things he's learned in his journey with, uh, I think, what was it, ServiceNow and then um, some other kind of uh, uh, hard tech company. And then now most recently with Snowflake and and kind of his his learnings and musings of being Frank and And that's a great book. That's a great book. You will get amped up after reading it. <laughs> I haven't read Amp Up, but it's it's nice that you talk about predictable revenue because that it's basically was a strategy that you use when you're talking about growing your company. You start with cold email, with outbound, and that's everything that we learn about in that book. I'm gonna definitely try to read one pop and if anyone listen to the show i agree with you if you haven't read predictable revenue it's probably the first book you should read to, to think about how you're going to promote your product especially like if you didn't grow up on a sales team right it's like you know who is the ceo of the company right did you come up from finance or did you come up from marketing or did you come up from engineering i mean if you came up from engineering trying to be ceo of like a cloud software company you're going to have to learn a lot about sales in a hurry, right? Like you're going to be doing the sales. Like I never really sold anything. Thank God my co-founder really had. And, and it's like, you need someone that can either supplement you or you got to be the person to do it. Right. So. Yeah, for sure. And so we talk a lot about the origin story of Link Square today. Where's the company head right now? Like what's the future looking like for you guys? Yeah. Future's looking really bright and, We just love working with the, the general counsel community, the in-house legal team community. 
we we have a, a really fantastic contract management product and we're really excited about offering more products to the same buyer like in the years to come uh, the company that influences me the most is someone who's right here in my hometown in Boston, which is HubSpot. And they're, they're such an inspiration to us. We have lots of HubSpotters now that work, you know, ex-HubSpotters that work for Linsquares now. But if I had to track one company I want to be when I grow up is like HubSpot. Like they made it to 1 billion of ARR. Now they're almost at 2 billion of ARR. And it still seems like they're they're having the most fun they've ever had, right? And what is a product strategy? 10 products to the same buyer, right? I, I look forward to doing that same thing with Link Scores again. Maybe in the time machine, my future self can tell me it's going to be hard. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm uh, predicting that it's going to be pretty hard. So That's awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time today. And I wish you good luck. Uh, keep growing the company. It's pretty amazing what you guys got. And thanks for being in the show. Yeah, thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.